Hi, welcome to the second installation of your 2010 Holiday Tolkien Professor episode extravaganza. Today I am finally, and very belatedly, posting the recording of a call-in session I hosted on Skype back on October 13th, 2010. At that time, as many of you will remember, I'd pretty much disappeared ever since the end of July, which I allude to in a couple places during the conversations. I had a whole bunch of callers, and although I didn't get to talk to all of them, I really enjoyed the conversations I did get to have. If you called in and missed me that night, I apologize. As I discussed with one of my callers in this recording, I'm going to develop a more organized system for checking in during call-in sessions so I can make sure to get back to people in the order in which they call me. More on that later, prior to my next Skype session, which I plan to hold probably in the second week of January. For now, on to the recording. Hello. Hello, Professor Olson. Hi, yes. Hi, uh, my name is Chris Stevens, and I've discovered your website and all your lecture downloads a couple weeks ago, and I've been through all of them, and... Uh, I had a question that uh, came up that you discussed the other day on uh, one of your other Skype uh, sessions that you had, and uh, was wondering if I could. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm almost a little stunned that I've got in. <laughs> I was looking at your website; it looked like you'd have a lot of students that were going to be jumping in, and so I, I, I'm kind of stunned here. Anyway, <laughs> um, I commend you on your. Uh, on, on all the information you put out. It's a lot of fun. I've been reading Tolkien for 40 years. Um, I don't have anybody, any of my friends who are into it to talk to about it. So anyway, I'll quit babbling and get on with my question. <laughs> the other day you were talking, or the other, the one session you were talking about the effect, the effects of the rings, um, their invisibility on the different races and the different types of people. Yes. I can't remember the... The, the conclusion. I was wondering whether the invisibility was almost like a side effect. I, although I guess that was the seven and the nine, that was planned by Soren to the uh, men and dwarves to be wraiths. Am I getting that right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it does seem to be. We know that there's explicit reference to the fact that he had wanted to bring. Basically, I mean, he was trying to bring everybody under his dominion. That was the function of the rings, in general. And of course, he created the one ring to be especially powerful because he was trying to use it to dominate the wielders of the three rings, who were both themselves the most powerful, and also the three rings were the most powerful of the other rings. So, so we know that dominion was his goal, and he tried to dominate the dwarves and failed to dominate them, though he could kind of influence them. And then, of course, the nine were obviously the biggest successes of the group. But the key thing, I think, the crux of the discussion of the invisibility and you know some of this discussion has sort of continued you know after i posted the that discussion um, on facebook and a couple other places where basically you know people are still wanting to think about is the invisibility a side effect in the sense of like is it related to the dominion to the command over other people especially since it's undeniable that many of the times most of the times even that we see people put on the ring they put it on with the desire to disappear, you know, with the desire sure. to hide. You know, Frodo's trying to hide from the Black Riders, even Bilbo trying to hide from the Sackville Bagginses, sure. uh, even Isildur trying to hide from the orcs who are chasing him after the disaster of the Gladden Fields. So it certainly is true that most of the time they're wanting to do that. And so you could say, well, therefore, mightn't the invisibility be a side effect of their own will, therefore, that they are actually 
you know, even though they're kind of doing it unconsciously, they're still deliberately wielding the power of the ring in order to make themselves, you know, hide most effectively and invisibility being the sort of most perfect and form even of Bilbo, hiding. When he finds it, he doesn't consciously do that, but he knows he needs to hide from Gollum, so it almost maybe it's an unconscious effect. Yeah, um, I mean, and that would be, because see, that would be one test moment, I would say. Because, of course, when Bilbo first puts it on, there's no way that he could be consciously wielding the power of the ring in that way because he hasn't the faintest idea what it does. He doesn't even realize, you know, anything about it. And he just sort of figures out that he's invisible by listening to Gollum talk to himself. But you're right. I mean, of course, even then, he's trying to get away from Gollum, right? So you could say that it's totally unconscious. So on that level, you know, I mean, I can find that argument kind of convincing. But the thing for me, which in the end doesn't work, um, which makes me go against this reading is the business with the wraith world like the way in which you know frodo while he's wearing the ring can see the nine riders in ways that others can because he sees them as they are in in you know the world where the in sort of the spirit world that that the wraiths live in and that you know as i talked about in that discussion that one conversation it's hard to sort of pin so much to this one exchange between gandalf and frodo when frodo wakes up in rivendell but but it's a really interesting moment and i think it, it is worth paying attention to because it's one of the places where gandalf seems to sort of speak more explicitly where tolkien talks about this sort of spiritual world, physical world relationship more explicitly here than he does in many other places. And so it's that business about how, you know, Frodo was almost entirely, you know, in the Wraith world by that time because he had begun to fade. You know, so the business with him fading and, and, and the ring's relationship to that, that's what really leads me to believe that the invisibility of the ring is caused not primarily by the will, even the unconscious will of the wielder seeking to dominate others in small ways by making them invisible and helping them to hide, but really is just a pure side effect in the sense that like, you know, what, what this does is it sort of draws you into that spirit world. Um, And that's what Sauron intended when he handed them out to the, yeah, I mean, that that seems to be sort of the kind of temptation. I mean, you know, in one sense, you can see how this would be very tempting in two ways to the original men who would have been corrupted by the Nine Rings. That is, on the one hand, it gives them power. We know that power was one of the main things that corrupted them, and it gives them a different kind of power. That is, not just, we're going to make you more powerful than other people and, like, sort of promote you to be most powerful of all people. From what we hear, they already were really powerful among people. What right. What it does is it gives them a whole new class of power now we're um you know we're going to make you above the human order you're going to be these immortal powerful spiritual beings and that's something that's really attractive and seductive i mean you think about the story of the downfall of numenor and that's exactly yeah exactly Exactly. up up the alley of temptation for for you know powerful powerful corrupt human beings so i mean so that that basically that that is clearly why it works with the dwarves of course it's kind of a different story but i think you know one of the things that we see with the hobbits and the reason it seems to affect hobbits differently and the reason that they don't seem to um even when they know about it don't really care about this and still just thinking about hiding and stuff i mean taking Gollum as the test case right i mean Gollum is the the hobbit-like figure who was most thoroughly corrupted by the ring and so he on one level is kind of the closest thing we have to a hobbit version of you know the ring wraiths right. uh, you know, he, he he hasn't become a wraith yet but he was corrupted and 
even he gets corrupted in small ways, not in big ways, right? He doesn't become a wraith he, and because he doesn't really try to do anything big with a ring. He doesn't try to gain power to himself. He, he gains power in small ways. He learns secrets and he kind of gets things over people. But the way that Gandalf describes it, he puts, you know, his knowledge to crooked and malicious uses, which is bad. But, you know, he doesn't like small try to take... Yeah, exactly. He doesn't try to take over a kingdom. And in the end, what does he want to do? U- ultimately, he wants to hide too. You know, he, he wants to, to go where nobody can catch him. He wants to wall himself in from, you know, the enmity of those who are kicking at him, right? Uh, you know, when he's biting at their feet. So, you know, he wants to be... He wants to build himself this, like, totally secret, impregnable little fortress um, under the Misty Mountains, which ultimately he does, partially with the help of the ring, but partially not. And once he does that, he doesn't want anything else from it. You know, he, he doesn't wear the ring that much. He doesn't do that much with the ring because well, the he... the ring wants to escape. <laughs> right, exactly. Somebody else with bigger, bigger ambition. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Let's get, can we get some bigger thinking here? You know, can we, can, we, can, we, can we actually get some vision rather than Gollum's thing? Exactly. Um, because basically he's, he's content. He's accomplished his, his goal, which was quite small. So, you know, that I think is, you know, again, another illustration of what happened or sort of how we can see the will of the corrupted person involved. And so if we kind of project that back or or sort of apply those same principles to Frodo and Bilbo and the extent to which, the much lesser extent than Gollum, to which they become corrupted, we can see them sort of consciously using their wills. But I don't think it's like in that desire to hide. I mean, the desire to hide when the Sackville Bagginses come to visit, that just doesn't really seem to be in the exactly in the category of what Gollum does. I mean, there's actually a kind of a neat parallel, right? I mean, like to hide yourself in a cave under the Misty Mountains is like the ultimate way to permanently escape from the Sackville Bagginses. But, um, but I mean, the, the, the difference in scale there is so big and the difference in quality too. It's, I mean, the, the relationship between Gollum and his neighbors is just so qualitatively different from the relationship between Bilbo. And yeah, exactly. So you can see a kind of a shadow of it, but it's still, um, it still just doesn't end up sounding the same. So I don't know. I mean, I think that it's hard to deny. um, It's hard to deny the, connection with hiding and the invisibility i mean like that 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 that's clearly a trend and it is really interesting and i don't want to just dismiss it but i don't think in the end we can say because it would be ignoring the wraith world stuff and the spirit world right. stuff. I, and i think yeah. that's more important really. yeah i i mean i kind of do too but it's but again i don't want to dismiss the other stuff it's certainly at the very least an interesting trend and seems to tell us something about the kinds of desires that the ring sort of facilitates and you know maybe in one sense that uh that sort of you know the fact that a correlation would be drawn between sort of elevation of self on the one hand you know with the desire for power and dominion and also Mm -hmm. like extinguishing of self in invisibility that kind of makes a lot of sense i mean that sort of doing uh doing in small scale um, and kind of rapidly, the kind of thing that we see happening to Morgoth and Sauron that is like to all evil creatures, you know, they, right. they, they, they extinguish themselves over the course of trying to elevate themselves. Well, anyway, one, one last angle I just wanted to throw out there. The effect on, say, the One Ring, for example, on a mortal versus an elf, for example. We don't have any examples of an elf with one of the bad rings, so to speak. Right. Um, would an elf become invisible? 
Well, see, I don't that, know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's where, like, you know, as, as in the in the discussion, I was thinking about Goadriel, and I'm thinking about some of the others, and I don't, I don't know. I my mean, guess is not. But yeah, I, my, I mean, that's for no. I haven't right. really thought it through all the way. Right. My guess is not two, though one distinction that Gandalf makes is he makes a distinction ultimately between, to use the Silmarillion vocabulary, between the Caliquendi and the Moriquendi, you know, between those who have been over yeah. in Valinor and those who haven't. Gandalf explaining to Frodo, you know, why Glorfindel was so utterly fearless about the Ringwraiths is that those, the, the elves who are Caliquendi, those who have been to Valinor, have nothing to fear from them because they exist at the same time in both the physical world and the spirit world. And so, therefore, presumably, you'd have to think, you know, if Glorfindel were to put on the one ring, he wouldn't just be sucked into the spirit world because he's already there. He's already there, right. Yeah, so presumably... You're, exactly. So he wouldn't, Galadriel wouldn't. Now, you know, would Celeborn? Would Elrond? Neither of them are Caliquendi. Um, right. You know, so, uh, you know, that's a little bit less clear. Though I'm guessing... I mean, we know that elves have a, a, a you know a different kind of spiritual being a different kind of spiritual essence a different kind of soul uh than humans have so i you know i don't know oh, yeah, i mean yeah. It, yeah it becomes pretty wildly spec- speculative pretty quickly the only thing we have definite evidence on is is the Caliquendi thing through Glorfindel, but I mean, it was. There's no question it would it would affect them. I mean, you know, and Goadriel is quite clear about the fact that it would corrupt her, and even the fact that Celebrimbor and the others immediately took off their rings as soon as they realized, as soon as Sauron puts on the One Ring for the first time, itself shows that they're aware of the fact that not only would them and the secrets of their minds be revealed to Sauron, but basically they're afraid of the influence over them, so they won't even put on the three rings as long as he has the one, and so that does sort of seem to suggest that. That they know full well that he actually could influence them and dominate them if they went that way. And so their only option is just to abstain from the three rings entirely. So obviously elves are susceptible, but would they become invisible? I don't know. I don't know. Well, <laughs> it's, it's fun to speculate anyway. It is. It is. Well, well thanks thank for, you your so much for your time. Yeah. And I will be following uh, your, uh, your posts. So. Well, great. Thanks, thank, thanks very much. Goodbye. Bye. Hello. Hello, this is Trenton. Hi, Trenton. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Good. How's your How's your year going so far? Pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Um, I was wondering if you had any uh references or suggestions for. Uh, getting into Anglo-Saxon and, like, learning it or something? Yeah, well, I've been thinking a lot about that because I'm teaching Anglo-Saxon this semester for the first time, and it's been tremendously fun to do. It's a lot of work. I would say the number one resource that I would point to, and I've actually been using this in my class, there is an online Anglo-Saxon grammar book, and it's designed for a lot of, you know, if you just, like, go and buy like, a, you know, the standard textbook of Anglo-Saxon grammar, it kind of gives you a lot more information than you really need to start with and can be pretty overwhelming. Michael Drought, the uh, professor uh, at Wheaton College whom I had conversations with last uh, term and posted them, he is one of the, uh, you know, he's a great Anglo-Saxon expert and has done a lot of work on this. And he's actually written a really good kind of, rough and dirty introduction to Anglo-Saxon, which is available for free online. 
So it's called King Alfred's Grammar. So if you just Google King Alfred's Grammar, and it's by Michael Drought, D-R-O-U-T. So if you Google some combination of those, I'm sure you'll be able to come up with it. And it just goes, it's about, I think it's 19 chapters long, maybe 20 chapters. And the, the chapters are like one page. I mean, they're really short. And he goes through the basic grammatical structures, the different paradigms that you need to know, you know, so that you have basically all the stuff that you need to, to recognize or memorize. Uh, and it's got, it's got some exercises and things to help you practice, you know, applying these grammatical principles. And then you can and start, you know, making your way through some of the literature. It, as I say, it's really fun to do. Um, it's a lot of work. But that's definitely where I would recommend starting for beginners. There's also a, a good, well, pretty good. It's not perfect. It's got some holes in it. But but again, I've also been using uh, this in my class too. A good online glossary. So, you know, when you, when you come to start doing uh, translations and stuff, basically it's just a dictionary, an old English to modern English dictionary. And that will obviously be really helpful when you come to, to start actually making translations and things. So, you know, I definitely highly recommend that too. I have, I posted somewhere a link to that glossary as well as the uh, link to the drought page. Gosh, where did I do that? My Facebook page, I think, um, recently. But if you can't find it, post again to my Facebook page and I'll respond with the links again uh, so that I can link you to them straight. That I think is sort of the simplest way to go. But really, it's mostly just kind of first learning the basic grammar and then, you know, just sort of practicing and familiarizing yourself with it. But it's, it's, it's work. I mean, learning Anglo-Saxon really is like learning a foreign language. Once you get over sort of the initial learning curve, you begin to recognize things and it begins to feel more like, okay, I can see the relationship between this language and modern English. But at first go, it's more like learning Latin than it is like reading Chaucer or something, which is middle English and much closer to our modern English. But good luck. That'll be fun. Uh, Since I'm teaching Anglo-Saxon this semester and I've sort of got that in my head and I really want to do it again sometime, it would be fun to do a sort of unofficial online Anglo-Saxon class. But we'll see. That'll still be a little bit down the road, but that would be fun to do. So we'll see. Yeah, that'd be really fun. Yeah, yeah. Well, good luck. It's uh, an excellent undertaking. Uh, And uh, let me know how it goes. Okay. All right. I was also wondering when the Silmarillion discussion group would start up. Well, as soon as I can arrange it. Right now, I'm still trying to work out what software that I'd be able to use. I have a few candidates, and I'm talking to the tech people at the college to see if I can get their help in setting things up and uh, and running things. If I can do that, then that would... I hope have some good outcomes to it. I'm going to be talking to them next week. I'm hoping within the next few weeks to get that sorted out so that we could begin. I'm hoping, you know, it is definitely my goal to see if we can have that started by Thanksgiving. That's my plan. And I, and hopefully sooner than that. We'll see. But at the very latest, Thanksgiving, I'm hoping. Okay. All right. Uh, that's about all I have. And thank you. Okay, great. Good to talk to you again, Trenton. Good to talk to you, too. Bye. All right. Bye. Well, hello. Hello. <laughs> Professor Olson, how are you doing, sir? Good. How are you? This is Rick, uh, Rick Dulp. Yes. Yeah. So, um... I seem to remember you know, that that we missed each other before, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, yeah. Probably 
I don't know, three months ago or whenever your last session uh, time was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, this is fantastic. I, I really enjoy all your podcasts and I think I've listened to all of them except for the ones that, for some reason, refuse to download. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Are you yeah. getting them through iTunes? Yeah, usually. It's just the, the easiest way. I, I suppose I could go directly to your website. It might be the way to do it. But. Yeah, they're available there in a couple formats, too. If for some reason iTunes is getting wonky on you, you could try going through the website and, and try that way. Okay. I'll, I'll definitely do that. Um, hopefully I'll be visiting you at your college next year. For oh. the, maybe. We'll see. I'm, I'm currently overseas, and I uh, will be stationed near the D.C. area. So if oh, I can cool. kind of hash it out to kind of live close enough to work and uh, also go to Washington College, that'd be fantastic. That would be cool. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. We'll see how that works out. So so my question, and uh, I, hope it's, I hope it's a good one, but, uh, you know, I... Tolkien was a religious man, and mm-hmm. uh, going through everything, I mean, there's references to there in the Silmar- Silmarillion and, and uh, um, the Lord of the Rings, two things that I guess that you could say are kind of religious, but there really seems to be just an absence of anything that you would actually consider religious, as I think of it at least, right. ceremony and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't, you know, it's not really a question, but it just seems a little odd to me. And I thought maybe you could comment on it. Right. Well, the most important principle to remember there is that Tolkien was not only, you know, like a stickler for detail, but he really liked things to be sort of carefully in their place. Um, he was like the opposite of slipshod. I can't like I can think of the perfect yeah. adjective here because like. Uh, the only adjectives I can think of have like negative connotations. But anyway, he was very careful and he was very cautious. And one of the things that he really believed in when he was imagining his world and he was writing about his world, he wanted to be consistent uh, and he wanted it to be thorough. And so he is envisioning, he is creating a world which also keep in mind part of the fictional frame of Middle Earth is that it's our world in ancient history. Okay. So, I mean, that that was from the beginning part of his conception, and uh, that kind of became less explicit in later versions. In the earliest versions of the Middle Earth stories that he wrote back in the Book of Lost Tales period, which was like right during and and, and just after World War One, it, it was even more explicit. In fact, like the island which was which was Elvenholm was going to turn out to become England, actually, and uh, you know, and he even had like you know the the main city of of Elvenholm. Was was actually going to be Warwick in England. So, I mean, the, the, he, you know, he, he envisioned that very clearly. He had connections between characters in English history, uh, like Hengist and Horsa, the Saxon invaders, and, uh, you know, like one of their descendants who was like a guy who went over to visit Elvenholm and heard all the stories. So, I mean, the, the connections between European history and Middle-earth history were in the original conception very explicit. That becomes less explicit later on, but it's still, um, even from like many of the comments um, you may remember that the narrator of The Hobbit makes, you can see that he is envisioning this as operating within our world. You know, even just basic things like the, you know, the little introductory sentence where he says, you know, back when there was less noise and more green. More green, yeah. You know, and that, again, the, the, the implication is like in our world, back a long time ago, this story happened. So what that means, therefore, for the question of religion and explicit theology in the story is that 
all of the Middle Earth stories are in the pre-Christian era. And so therefore, they're not going to have, you know, he's not going to do the kind of thing that, say, for instance, medieval authors were comfortable doing. Medieval authors had no real sense of the concept of anachronism. Like, they just didn't care. They weren't trying to write, like, you know, so when a medieval person like Chaucer, for instance, writes a story that takes place in the time of the ancient Greeks, for instance, Chaucer's great poem, Troilus and Crusade, which takes place during the Siege of Troy. So this is a story that takes place in ancient Troy, and but he makes almost no attempt to make that historically accurate, to make the scene or the setting or the costumes or anything historically accurate. All the characters in, ancient, in Chaucer's ancient Troy in that poem look and sound exactly like medieval knights. I mean, like when they go out to fight in the war, like they, they dress in full armor just like medieval knights. Everything, I mean, they have a church, they, they have a temple, which is sort of officially a temple to the Greek gods. However, it looks exactly like a Christian church. The ceremonies are exactly like a Christian church. And he didn't care, and they didn't care. Like, th- this wouldn't have been considered, you know, like a creative faux pas on Chaucer's part. We care about that kind of thing. They, they just really didn't. Tolkien did not think that way. He was not comfortable with that. So he wasn't going to say, on the one hand, I'm, 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 I'm telling a story which is supposed to be theoretically in a pre-Christian world, and yet I'm going to have them carrying on and going to church as if they were Christians. Like, he just wouldn't have done that. He, he didn't okay. find that appropriate. Another example of a kind of author that, Chaucer, that, that, that Tolkien is not like is C.S. Lewis. One of the things that really annoyed Tolkien about the Chronicles of Narnia, which he didn't really like that much, is the fact that... Lewis is really undisciplined in the stuff that he brings in. I mean, it's such a hodgepodge of, you know, mythologies and ideas. You know, you get this very Christian figure of Aslan, you know, rubbing elbows with... uh, I was actually just finished reading last night. I just finished reading Prince Caspian to my seven-year-old son. And so, I mean, here's Aslan running around with Bacchus and Silenus and the Mayanads from Greek mythology. And then, of all things, Father Christmas shows up and, and, you know, Santa Claus, you know, walks into the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I was just like, the, the way that, like, all of these different concepts and mythologies, you know, from, like, fairy stories and, and, you know, and ancient Greece and and all of these other ideas are all just kind of chucked in together. And that just really annoyed Tolkien. He, he just didn't think like that, couldn't operate like that, and wasn't going to be kind of dragging things in like this. Now, I mean, you know, and this is not to say that like what Lewis was doing was therefore inferior to what Tolkien was doing. Lewis is doing a totally different thing and he's thinking a totally different way. And the way that he does bring these different myths together is I think really interesting and adds up to a, a, you know, a pretty profound statement, not only about those myths, but about myth in general in the Chronicles of Narnia. So I intend no insult to Lewis in saying that, but Tolkien didn't play that way. <laughs> he just okay, he just wouldn't do that. And so that I think is a big part of why there is so little explicit religion because they just frankly don't know that much about God. God has not yet revealed himself to them as he did to the ancient Jews in the Old Testament and then does in the Christian era thereafter through the Christian teachings. So you know so therefore part of like the whole presupposition of Tolkien's writing is, given that we have a pre-Christian world in which they don't really have a personal relationship with God, they don't know all that much about God, and, and therefore have very little in the way of religious practice themselves, but yet 
those who are wise, those who do know anything and who have some of the wisdom which is handed down, you know, from the elves who got it from the Valar over in Valinor, those who are wise know that the universe is monotheistic and are all operating on a monotheistic basis. Uh, you know, so that, like, there are some basic things that they know. But yeah, as far as practice, because when you think about it, one of the points of religious practice is to, it's about interacting with God. It's about having a relationship with God, and that's what they didn't have yet, basically, within Tolkien's framework. And he wasn't going to just bring it in, because that wasn't his point. Again, go back to the obvious comparison with the Chronicles of Narnia. Clearly, one of the things that Lewis was setting out to do in those books is to be both examining and illustrating certain Christian ideas. But that's not what Tolkien was setting out to do. He does end up doing that. I mean, he does illustrate and examine many Christian ideas in very interesting ways. But he comes at it from a very different angle from Lewis. It's not an axe that he's publicly grinding. It just becomes part of the whole framework of what he, of how he thinks. But Like, he can't help it just because that's who he is, so it comes out in his work. Yeah, yeah, and I don't think yeah. that he wants to help it. I mean, it's and it's also just sort of him thinking through things at all. I mean, he says things... he naturally, you know, ends up advocating things which he believes to be true in his books. Like, that's hardly surprising, <laughs> right? And those things are, and those things uh, for Tolkien are Christian ideas. But, you know, he did not have, Lewis had sort of the attitude and the outlook of an apologist. You know, he wanted to explain and to defend Christian ideas to the public. Tolkien, that wasn't one of his desires. It wasn't one of his goals. You know, so he wasn't sort of setting out with the goal of conveying those messages. But of course, when he thinks through things, when he articulates things, he does it within that framework because that's the framework that he operates in. But yeah, you're not going to find the kind of explicit religious stuff that you get in somebody like Lewis. Very nice. I'm, I'm having a hard time responding at all because I'm just so used to listening to the podcast. <laughs> yes, I know that you actually. Know, just... I, I've noticed that before. That actually is a danger, you know, especially, you know, once I get into like lecturing mode and stuff. And then, yeah, you get into, yeah, here we are listening to a podcast again. And it might accidentally like try to hit pause or something. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. 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 Exactly. yeah. Which actually I, I find to be a downside of using the iPod a lot in general. I mean, there have been times I listen to my iPod so much, I listen to books all the time on my iPod. And uh, I found myself a, a couple times trying to, like, reaching for my pocket to push stop on a live conversation or something <laughs> when, <laughs> when something's going on. I've definitely caught myself making that motion, which fortunately I think the person I'm talking to doesn't know uh, how yeah. to interpret that with, particular that gesture. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. A little embarrassing, but there it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for your, no for problem. your time. No problem. That was a wonderful answer. Good. Much more than I expected. I wasn't even sure if I had a good question there. No. No, no, it, it is a very interesting thing. It sounds great. Yeah, well, and it's, 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 it's something that, I mean, it's definitely something that I've thought a lot about and that I'm very interested in. I mean, I think that it's always a sort of a curious question because, I mean, I do think that, that the Christian ideas in Tolkien are really profound and are really important, but I can also really easily understand a person who reads them and is like, you know, these books don't really sound all that Christian to me. I don't, I don't, I don't really understand. So, I mean, I think that, you know, it's, both perceptions you know, are really valid in that way. So I think it's, uh, it's definitely something that's interesting to think about. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks for calling. Well, thank you, sir. Okay. Yeah, have a good night. You too. Bye. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad we're talking. Yeah. 
Yeah, thank you for being patient. I had a sort of an unexpectedly high call volume tonight. These, these sessions are always a little bit hit or miss, and sometimes I get a bunch of calls, and sometimes I don't get that many. So tonight I'm trying to sift through a bunch. So thanks for being patient. I understand. People are probably missing their Tolkien fix. <laughs> yes, well, it probably doesn't help the fact that I've been gone for so long, and I think that's contributing to the volume tonight. <laughs> Indeed. Well, I have a couple questions, but uh, I just want to let you know that I'm a high school English teacher. Okay. And I have the honor of teaching a semester-long Tolkien course. That is fantastic. You know, it's rare enough to get, you know, full semester Tolkien classes taught in colleges. To be able to do one in high school, that is that is just priceless. That is fantastic. It is, it is awesome. It is, it is absolutely wonderful. Where on earth do you teach? I teach at a Catholic high school in Dayton, Ohio. Okay. Wow. And you have a, what, a, a, a dean or a department chair who is just like extraordinarily and unusually enlightened? A couple years ago, we decided to sort of change up the format of our senior year English, and we went to electives. Mm-hmm. So she allowed us to submit ideas for electives. Yeah. And, and writing off the popularity of the movies, we... we uh, surveyed the students and they were like yes we want a tolkien course yeah so it worked out well this is my second year teaching i taught it twice last year once each semester oh wow wow i mean that's that's like living the dream right there i mean that's pretty that's pretty incredible it really is yeah wow. i have a couple questions okay one is uh might be pretty easy but uh i've done a little research and i can't find the answer so in book one, chapter two, mm-hmm. when Frodo and Gandalf are talking and Sam is eavesdropping, yes. Gandalf catches him. Sam says, Lore bless me. Uh huh. Who's Lore? Well, that's a very interesting question because I would be tempted to say that, uh, that Sam's vernacular is one of the few places where. Tolkien kind of slips. The previous caller that I was talking to, we were talking about sort of the whole religious system within, or rather the lack of a religious system within Tolkien. And the thing that I was trying to emphasize was that Tolkien tries to be consistent in that he's depicting a pre-Christian world, and so he doesn't drag in basically what would be Christian worship in disguise. He doesn't have people as you see in medieval works, people who are supposed to be ancient Greeks but yet are swearing by the Virgin Mary and stuff like that. I mean, that was perfectly common and perfectly accepted in medieval works. Tolkien tries not to do that. But clearly what Sam is saying is, Lord bless me. He's using English slang. I would suspect that it being a genuine inconsistency. I sort of want to be tentative in saying that because there aren't that many. And Tolkien did, I mean, he revised so carefully. One thing that sometimes one is tempted to say when reading something like The Lord of the Rings, you know, because it's such a long book. I mean, it's, there's, I mean, there's so much there. You know, one is tempted to be like, well, you know, like some things just kind of slip in. He probably didn't really pay much attention to it. But, you know, I mean, he did. <laughs> he absolutely did. He re- rewrote that sucker so many times, you know, and he said in a letter to his publisher, and, and I find no reason to think he's exaggerating, that he carefully considered every word. 
And I believe that he did. He, you know, was so interested in words and so focused on words. And so I don't think that it's just a slip, but I do think that it's basically a kind of a liberty that he seems to have permitted himself. Sam Gamgee and his talk. I mean, even you remember the reference that Frodo makes to Sam's talk later on and how how comforting and encouraging Frodo finds it. Um, And from his letters, we also learn that his children and especially Christopher were delighted by it. Um, you know, when he was in the storytelling phase and that the Sam Gamgee's character and the Gaffer Gamgee were based on, you know, this sort of inside family joke uh, that they had. I mean, like the Gaffer Gamgee was, you know, their name for, you know, this sort of like prototypical, stereotypical, you know, like English yokel, basically modeled on this guy they saw on vacation once. Um, so, you it know, seems to me, I don't know why it seems what Welsh. They lived in the West Midlands, so, I mean, like, they, they were not far from the Welsh border. It's possible. But, yeah, I mean, so, basically, I mean, Sam's talk, in Sam's language, you know, Tolkien is very consistent and, and very accurate and very evocative and very funny in replicating Sam's sort of low-class dialect. And that's exactly like what you would expect, you know, a lower-class English person to say but yeah but like what what lord i mean he doesn't he doesn't exactly do as i mentioned in my other illustration it's not like he's swearing by the virgin mary as they might have in a medieval poem but it almost approaches that and i think that's really interesting i don't even think that i mean i never really thought about that before but it really seems to be because there really isn't any lord to refer to there there isn't any lord that sam would really be thinking about even if you tried to construct a way in which that phrase could have evolved. And by the way, this is what I suspect Tolkien would do. I don't remember him ever talking about this ex- this explicitly. But when somebody would call him on something or catch him in an apparent contradiction, um, Tolkien's response usually would be basically to like generate this like enormous backstory, which would explain it. <laughs> he was always more interested in doing that than just like changing it. He'd be you know he was you know like, he, this would be like the birth of a whole new story. So like trying to imagine what Tolkien would say, he would probably probably say something like that it's derived from the traditions of the king, you know, like from their expressions, they haven't heard of the king around here, which of course is itself, when he refers to that in the Fellowship of the Ring as an expression, that itself is explaining away an inconsistency between the Hobbit and the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, That phrase, they've hardly ever heard of the king around here, was used in the Hobbit when clearly Tolkien's sense of the like political context of that part of the world was different than it later on came to be, but he explains that away by making it, you know, a figure of speech. Um, and so I'm guessing, and that's just pure guesswork on my part, I would guess that that's kind of where he would go and sort of how he would explain it. But it really does seem to me that the origin of that is just in trying to replicate low-class speech. And I think that it's, it's, it seems to me a genuine inconsistency. Is there any chance that it's, you talked about the different layers in there, like this is an an edit from a much later editor to make Sam appear more rustic. Is there any chance of that? I wouldn't think so. I would have to go back, and I don't have the book with me. It's in my office. I would have to go back and look at the History of Middle-Earth series, volume six of the History of Middle-Earth, which is the History of the Lord of the Rings, and it gives the full, it's, 
Christopher's full discussion of the of the manuscript history of the Lord of the Rings, and he gives the earlier drafts of all of these things. And so I would have to go back and look at that scene and the different drafts of that scene, because since, of course, since that's chapter two, the early chapters of the Fellowship of the Ring were rewritten, like completely rewritten, five or six times. So in... In that book, titled The Return of the Shadow, as I said, I think it's volume, I'm sure, it's volume six of the History of Middle-Earth series, um, you'd be able to find several earlier versions of that chapter, and it would be interesting to see when that expression crept in. But I am pretty sure it's not a later edition. That I believe to be authentic. With one of the things that Christopher still, on behalf of the Tolkien estate, has been very careful with, has been trying to preserve the purity of, of the main text itself. As... You know, HarperCollins and Houghton Mifflin, you know, always are wanting to, you know, publish new editions and new editions and new editions of the books when the movies came out and for many other commemorative occasions and various things like that. I know that there has always been a lot of a lot of attention put by the Tolkien estate and by Christopher to make sure that the text does not get altered and messed with by people who are more interested in publishing quickie editions of the text than being scrupulous about reproducing the text exactly. So I'm re- reasonably certain that it is not a later edition. Okay. Well, my other it's not so much a question, but an idea. Uh, for a, a long time, I really had trouble conceptualizing the fact that the elves would do manual labor. Mm-hmm. Like, they're, you know, they're either singing all the time or they're creating these incredible things... And so I thought, well, how do they feed themselves? How do right. they? Like, I just can't imagine that Amrod and Amras are out slopping the hogs. Right, right. But then I was rereading the Silmarillion over the summer, and I just came across, I don't remember where exactly it was, but someone was crossing the, the fields in Valinor. Mm-hmm. And described that these were the fields that Vana worked. Is that right, Vana? Yeah, Yovana would be the one Yovana. overseeing it. Yeah, yeah. And, and I just got the impression that she actually did the labor. Mm-hmm. Which is like, whoa, wait a minute. She's a Valar. Right, right. If the Valar are slopping the hogs, then it makes it easier to imagine, you know, Feanor slopping. Oh, well, Feanor wouldn't have. Uh, but Fingolfin might have. Finarfin totally would have. Yeah, yeah. And so I began to think and, and look throughout the books in terms of what I'm calling like the nobility of, of labor. And that Tolkien really says, you know, it, it, it isn't the job that you do, it's how you do the job. And that he really elevates that being connected with the earth is not something that's a low position, you know, that right. people great honor, you know, are connected with the earth. And that, you know, that they talk about Galadriel weaving, uh, maybe, I think Sam thinks, uh, the, the cloaks that they get herself, you know, and that, that there's this beauty that comes from simple work. Yes. I was just mulling that over in my mind. I don't know if there's anything that you could add to that. Well, I mean, I think that that's a really important thing to remember because it is really easy to get into a place where you think of the elves as these like high and lofty ethereal creatures, uh, you know, of great power and majesty. And you can't imagine. I mean, your image of slopping the hogs is an excellent one because it's exactly the kind of thing that, you know, you, you know, you, like you read the story of Baron and Luthien and you're trying to imagine like, you know, King Fingal or Luthien, or I mean any of them, right, doing these things. And it's hard because of the great majesty that we are invited to picture in them. But I think that you are right to insist, basically, that we remember 
this is not about lowliness. This is not about them being, well, I mean, being humbled, but being humbled, I mean, that's a good thing. There is a real, not only honor in that, but delight in that. I mean, think about the scene even in The Fellowship of the Ring with Legolas's sort of relationship to the trees when they get to Lothlorien and he can't wait to climb up in the tree and to see its shape and way of growth, right? The way that he wants to introduce himself to this new kind of tree and really sort of touch it and experience it. And, you know, that kind of that kind of relationship with growing things, that is actually perfectly compatible with farming, with growing with growing things. And I think that they would have I mean, logically they must have. It's actually funny. I have recorded a conversation with Tara Holstie, my former student with whom I've recorded a conversation previously, but I haven't posted it yet. I plan to post it this weekend. I just recently recorded it. Um, and actually, we, we talked about exactly this issue. Uh, do the elves do agriculture and what evidence do we have that they do? I think that they must. But I think that that's, it is really important to remember. There's another passage in the Silmarillion which describes the feast that's going on when Melkor comes to destroy the trees when Melkor and Angoyant break in, that's a festival celebrating the fruits of the harvest. And they all, the Valar and the elves alike, are resting from the labors of the harvest to have that feast. So that is, as far as I can remember, the most explicit reference to the elves and Valar together in Valinor participating in harvesting. And I do think, you know, there is a really having that kind of relationship with the earth and with growing things definitely is not a low thing, but a high thing. And definitely something that we, I think, can and, and really sort of should imagine the elves doing. So, so yeah, but we don't get that much image of them. That is, we don't get that many references to them actually undertaking agriculture. We don't see the physical evidence of it almost anywhere in the stories. It kind of must be happening. I I mean, you think about, uh, I mean, Gondolin is sort of the extreme example, right? I mean, they live in this valley, totally enclosed with no commerce with the outside world at all. Obviously, they grow their own food. They can't live if they don't, right? Right. But yet, you know, that's never talked about. We hear about their mining. We hear about their smithcraft. We know that the setting, we know that they live in this broad and fertile vale. And so, you know, absolutely every reason to think that they do or could farm. But we're never told about it, you know, and so, which which I think is actually kind of interesting that that he doesn't describe that. He doesn't. But I think that your take on it, I, I mean, I definitely agree with you. Well, excellent. So, well, great. Uh, I definitely appreciate you calling me back. Um, and uh, I actually had my students listen to uh, the podcast on dragons and orcs yesterday. Oh, cool. Yeah, in preparation there. We're starting the two towers this week. So. Oh, neat. Yeah, I need to know a little bit more about orcs. Good, good. Good. Well, that's fun. It would be to think of those things getting out and getting into other classrooms. And I'm just all over delighted by the idea of you're getting to do that with with high school students. I mean, I think it's such a great thing for high school students to be able to do. There's so much there's so much that they can I mean, even just thinking purely, you know, as an English teacher, you know, myself, there's so much benefit, I think, for high school students in the way that Tolkien's books really sort of challenge and stretch young readers. I think it's just a really fantastic thing. Definitely. I agree. Yeah. Very cool. Well, thanks for calling. No problem. Thank you. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Hello, Professor Olson. Hello. How are you, Dave? I'm fine. How about you? 
No problem. I'm good. Thanks. I'm being overwhelmed by calls tonight. This actually has never happened before. My other Skype sessions had people calling in, but this is the first time that I've had like 15 people call in at the same time. So (laughs) thank you for your patience as I've been sorting through things here. This is what you get for disappearing for a few months. Yeah, I know. I know. It was probably rash of me to try to do a Skype session within a week of posting my first episode in three months. Yeah, I'm getting like the backlash of the Tolkien discussion withdrawal that I have put people through. So it's my own fault. Fortunately, I'm on the West Coast, so I figured I could wait out all these other people. (laughs) Right, right. That's true. I don't have to go to bed. I don't have anywhere to be. Yes. (laughs) I I appreciate you calling back. Out of curiosity, what would you consider proper etiquette for doing this? Well, you know, I I, I was definitely thinking, of course, tonight's session was definitely making me think that I should probably publish or develop actually some kind of protocol, which I never really have. I have the do not disturb symbol up just because that prevents calls from actually making an audio sound on my on my own machine which which then my recorder picks up uh, the, you may remember if you listen to my very first recorded Skype session it had a call waiting signal beeping through several times and I figured out that to make that stop I had to put the do not disturb sign on at this point i'm just kind of trying to keep track of who contacted me or notified me when but yeah i should probably have some kind of a more organized waitlist system worked out here somehow i think but it's actually as it did before tonight had never really been needed to quite this extent so well yeah. now you know now, now i know and i'll have to devise a system but uh yeah we'll <laughs> see I think probably using the – I think what I would probably do is just using the text chat thing uh, on Skype as a way for people to notify me that they want me. And then I'd just call them back in order right. that I receive their text. That seems sort of the simplest and fairest it thing. But... probably as it adds people in the little drawer on the side, I'm guessing it probably adds them top to bottom as they message you. So that might even – form a queue. This other thing does though, people kept disappearing. The, yeah, there were different things. I, I was trying to use that and it kind of worked, but there it kind of didn't too. And I so I think that that was partially maybe I have something set differently and could yeah, can change Skype's certainly not going to work for the Silmarillion discussion. No, no, it's definitely not going to. No, I'm definitely going to be wanting to use something a little more elaborate than Skype. I mean, I know I could set up a conference call and that's, though I don't think I could set up a conference call with 25 people necessarily. No, I uh, think that, yeah, it would probably kill your computer. Yeah, it would. And I think it would get pretty ugly. No, I mean, I'm thinking of something like Adobe Connect or maybe Illuminate uh, depending on uh, which one I can get worked out, but I'm actually kind of I'm working with my IT people at the college to see if I can get their help in setting this up. Wow, that's and, nice of them. Yeah, well, it is. I mean, they've been very supportive, and I've been very appreciative of that. They've been helping me all along with the tech end of things. So um, huh. I'm going to see if I can avail myself of their assistance again in this project. And uh, you know, there were a couple of people who were asking on on Facebook about you know the possibility of doing something like this, just like as a real honest to God credit bearing class through through the college. That's not going to happen anytime very soon from my college, uh, the faculty of my college being not exceptionally enthusiastic about the online course idea. But nevertheless, I mean, it could be a kind of a, you know, a sort of a way to sort of pioneer some of the technology, you know, mm-hmm. maybe if we can. Then I'm sort of wondering if perhaps it can it can be a, a kind of a test case. 
in some ways, or at least if I can do this, I can kind of point to it and show people that you don't have to be afraid. But even out here in California in the UC system where they're doing a lot of that stuff and they're talking about doing like online degree programs, there's still a lot of people who sort of think that you just don't get the same education online that you do in a classroom and that sort of the degree you might get through it won't be the same. Mm -hmm. And then there's, you know, there's a lot of interesting issues because with technology, you can usually deliver the education for less money. Right. There's a lot of people who say if we charge less, people will think it's less valuable. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I can't. uh, It's hard for me to get behind the like, no, it is important, intrinsically (laughs) important for us to charge much money. Kind of hard for me to defend that position. But no, I I agree. And I mean, I think part of it, I mean, when we've had these debates and it hasn't come up nearly as often as I'd like, but when we've had these debates at the college, I mean, the resistance from the faculty primarily is in exactly those terms. That is, you just can't, people quickly start making jokes about the University of Phoenix, but but basically, you know, we don't want to become the University of Phoenix, and so therefore, no. I, I think the problem is a lot of people just basically don't really understand the technology. I mean, mm-hmm. one, one of the reasons that I was thinking about the Silmarillion discussion idea is that first I just flat think it would be fun to do but I also you know I've been kind of theorizing as long as the mechanics the the sort of the technological mechanics of having a discussion with a you know the equivalent of a room full of people online as long as the mechanics can be managed effectively I'm not convinced that there's a single thing that I do in the classroom that I couldn't do online given today's technology. Now, that's not to say that getting an online education is the same experience as, you know, having a residential college experience. It's certainly not the same experience. But this is not to speak for all professors of all courses, but, I mean, thinking about my own courses, I I really am not sure. I mean, of course, it makes a difference being in the same room with people and being face-to-face with people. There's no changing the fact that there's something different about that. But yet, you know, like what I say, what I do, what I actually, you know, can do for and with my students, with today's technology, I'm not really sure that there's a whole lot that I do in the room that I couldn't do online. And so kind of to explore that, this is sort of one of the questions that I would kind of like to have a firmer answer to. And it's one of the reasons why I would like to try the experiment and really see how an online discussion, a genuine multi-person discussion goes compared to how I find, uh, you know, my classroom discussion and then, you know, be able to tell much more concretely the similarities and differences. But, but I find the potentials really exciting. And I think, I mean, it's been one of the things for me ever since I started doing this, you know, a year and a half ago is, you know, I have found the kind of interactions that, you know, I'm able to have with people, the kinds of connections that I've been able to establish with people all over the place has just been so much fun. And it's been so rewarding. I mean, working with students has always been like, I mean, it's what I got into this job for in the first place. And I, and I just, I really love working with students and I love interacting with people. And I have, I have found my online interactions with people just, as I say, really rewarding. I mean, like I find interacting with my live students on campus really rewarding. To me, it doesn't feel like a night and day difference. It really doesn't, but... Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. Um, and I tell you what, if you're ever interested, I can try to put you... My alma mater is Stanford um, okay. out, up in the Bay Area, and, and they have... At the School of Education they, and Communication and in the Engineering School, they have a whole bunch of 
research going on about mm-hmm. online education, how to deliver it, technology and stuff. And I can see, try to dig up some people I know working on some of that stuff and put you in touch with them someday if you're ever interested. Oh, well, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's, especially if we ever come to the point of actually convincing even one person at my college that this might mm-hmm. be an interesting thing to attempt to pilot, then I, that's definitely something that I would be interested in doing. Well, because the other thing, too, is even even for like an informal class, one of the things that they I know there's people there working on prototype platforms and, and technologies for doing this. Yeah. And it might be that what they're looking for is is they're looking for people maybe at other places who have a thriving community of, of interested students, be they traditional students or just random people on the internet like me who like your stuff. You know, that would be it might be an opportunity for them to test their stuff on a wide basis. So yeah. I'll uh, I'll look into it and I'll get back to you if I find anything substantive. Yeah, um, definitely. That would no, be that, interesting. Yeah, and that definitely. might solve your problem of what platform do I use? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean it's I'm definitely interested in that. And yeah, I I mean it's trying to make sure because of course the I mean the 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 key is to make sure that it really can work smoothly and trying to make sure to work out the mechanics of it, as I said, because if you can do that, I'm pretty convinced that it would work out pretty well. So no, that's going Stanford. I mean, you know, goodness knows Stanford is, they're like the icon of, you know, iTunes U education and stuff like that. I mean, the posting of my course last spring, the idea occurred to me when one of our tech people was showing me the Stanford site and all their courses. And I was like, well, that's cool. Yeah. That sounds like a good idea. Why don't we do that? And so I, I asked the tech people, I'm like, you know, because we have an iTunes U site. I'm like, why don't we put stuff like this on the iTunes U site? And they're like, because the faculty, like, we haven't found any faculty who are willing to do it. And I'm like, well, then, all right, let's You've do got that. One. Yeah, exactly. So now if you go to the Washington College iTunes U site, there's my course, dog on it. I know so. Your material, your material got moved from podcast to iTunes U at some point. Yes. It's still in the podcast section. There's like separate links to it in iTunes U, but it's definitely searchable in both places. Sort of our small and modest way in which we are taking one tiny and tentative step in the direction that Stanford is boldly charging ahead in. Well, keep it up. Oh, well, we're working on it. We're working on it. <laughs> But I think you had another question as well here. We've been chatting oh, about yeah, well, online sure. education I, well, for a while here. It's less a question and more I wanted to get your thoughts on what we get about or what Tolkien is saying in all of his works about the proper attitude toward death. Yes. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> um, That's a nice, simple, contained question. Yeah, right? yeah, definitely. <laughs> what about the whole death thing? Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. One of the big, sort of the thorniest issues with Tolkien's depiction of death is that, I was about to say superficially, but it's not even that superficial. Even if you think about it carefully, Tolkien's treatment of mortality among humans Mm -hmm. uh, in Middle-earth seems to be the only thing in Tolkien's world which appears to be in contradiction to Christian theology. That um, that is exactly that, that's I was just having this conversation with someone as I was mustering my thoughts for this call. It, it I I think about it and I think there's a lot of stuff going on around death here that that I think would make Catholic theologians squeamish. Yeah, and there were some who were made squeamish by it. It seems there are a couple of exchanges that Tolkien has in his letters, sort of fortunately because that like 
those exchanges help me answer this question. But but basically, where I mean, he had conversations with Catholics about this who are like, you know, this is great, really love your writing, but a little uncomfortable with the death thing. I mean, and just you know, to put it simply, for people who are less familiar with the theological background there. The main issue is that Tolkien describes, consistently describes, death as a gift. Death is the gift of Iluvatar to men. And within the framework of Middle-earth, that seems to work quite well. Elves are given immortality, that is, their lives are coexistent with Middle-earth, so they will live as long as Middle-earth lasts. But to men, as it says in that line that I love from the Silmarillion, to men he gave strange gifts. (laughs) That is strange to the elves who are writing that story. And... He gave them this new gift, and the gift of death is basically the gift to depart from the circles of the world. And the clearest theological statement we get about what death means, like the positive attitude towards death, is Aragorn on his deathbed in the appendices, when he is saying to Arwen, you know, don't despair. Don't despair now, for, you know, beyond the circles of the world is more than memory. You know, we go somewhere else. It's true that we don't know where we go. And this is the problem that's been a, a, a tripping point for men at many points in Tolkien's writing. Of course, most spectacularly, the Numenorians who raise yes. exactly this argument, you know, for we go, we go not whither. I love that line. Yes. Uh, what is asked of us is... Blind trust. Yes, a blind trust and a hope without assurance, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's true. In one sense, they go into the dark. You know, they go, nobody knows exactly where they go. But it's still a gift. It is darkened by Melkor, and, you know, his shadow is upon it, and so people fear death. But originally, it was not a gift. Now, of course, the Christian theological idea is that death is a punishment, that originally Adam and Eve created sinless, don't, um, are, you know, are not subject to death, and that God tells them, in the day you eat the fruit of the tree, you will die, and that death is the consequence of sin and therefore is a punishment by God. And so Tolkien in his letters, when he addresses this, basically says, no, there is not a contradiction here. And the way he explains the contradiction is to say, okay, you know, is death a punishment for sin? Yes, of course, it is God's punishment. But, he says quite wonderfully, what of God's punishments are not gifts? If God is disciplining humans in this particular way, he has done this not for their destruction, but for their good. And that, therefore, he does not, he personally does not consider those two different ways of looking at death, death as gift and death as punishment, as actually being contradictory. Right. Now, I mean, I still think that at the end of the day, it's undeniable that, this sounds really vague, but like the flavor of it feels very different. I mean, the way that death is talked about in the New Testament, say, you just, death is not talked about that way. Right. By, in and of itself, by, it's a bad thing. Yes. Really. And it's a direct consequence of sin, whereas in Middle Earth, really the only consequence of so-called sin is the fear of death. Right, right. Without Morgoth, without evil and all that kind of stuff. Right, and corruption and suffering and things. Right, 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 exactly. But yeah, as far as its only connection with death, it's just it has made death harder to accept for people. So yeah, I mean, that framework that he establishes is a different framework. The way that he seems to kind of reconcile it himself, and I guess, you know, the reason that Tolkien does not start the death question or the sort of the death scenario in Middle-earth from his starting point does not seem to be that Christian theological statement, which again is 
very unusual. I mean, there's can't, I literally can't think of anything else, a sort of major philosophical or theological point in Tolkien's world, which is not sort of, if you go back to square one, basically a Christian idea. But it's not. Again, in spirit, it does definitely feel different, even though the proper attitude towards death is essentially a Christian attitude. I mean, the hope in which Aragorn yields up his life willingly and dies is exactly classic illustration. The talk I gave at the Festival in the Shire this summer was on hope and despair, and I was looking at basically the way in which Tolkien is illustrating sort of the classical Pauline Christian virtue of hope very evocatively throughout the Lord of the Rings. And that is sort of one of the sort of final fruition moments of that. So there's no question that the attitude that good people in Tolkien have towards death is very much like the attitude enjoined on Christians towards death after the fact. It's the initial setup that differs (laughs) as far as how death enters the picture, but I'm kind of digressing from what I started to say, which was where Tolkien started from was basically this question of mortality versus immortality. Since he is starting from this, what is in Tolkien a two-body problem instead of a one-body problem, that is elves and humans instead of just humans, he has death coming into the picture for men, mortality being intrinsic to human mm. nature rather than this kind of unnatural consequence of sin. Yeah. Because from the beginning, that's what that's the thing that separates them from the elves. They have a different relationship with the world and therefore also a different relationship with Iluvatar. That one of the implications, and this is only hinted at in a couple of places, mostly because the Silmarillion is told from the elvish perspective, so they just don't know much about like the human perspective on things. But one of the implications of the gift of death is that humans are granted the ability to have, in a sense, a closer direct relationship to Iluvatar than the elves are. It's true. They're not bound to the earth. At least there seems like possibility of not having the Valar as their mediators. Yeah, yeah, exactly. At some point, I hope to make time for, and the busyness of my summer is the only thing that prevented this from happening yet. But I want to sit down and record a conversation with one of my students, well now my former students, she just graduated, a student, Alison Fishbach, who wrote her senior thesis with me last year on the theme of death in Tolkien. And she was looking at this and how the gift of death as a gift really does work out, especially when you look at various places in the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion. And she did a lot of really interesting work with interesting. with Turin Turambar, for instance. Allison, in this thesis, has I got really excited about it. One of the best readings of Turin Turambar. Do you want to see a way in which the story of Turin Turambar is not just like shoot yourself in the head depressing? <laughs> like, you know, she's got it. She's got it. And I was so excited. I was like, the wow. point that, that just really helps me not just get really depressed when I'm reading that. So anyway, I hope to sit down and have a conversation with her on the subject of her thesis. To what sort are the, of work uh, some of what these are the chances you could convince her to share the thesis? Well, I mean, in reading it. Yeah, I mean, I could definitely ask. I don't know uh, if she has sort of further plans with with it, that is, she's going to think Published. about moving it towards publication or anything. Yeah, I'm going to talk to her about that. But but yeah, no, we definitely have that conversation. Or, if you ever you know, need extra proofreaders, I'll volunteer. Yeah. I'd love to read that. Oh, cool. Yeah, well, I will definitely let her know. And uh, as I said, I hope to be able to catch up with her at some point. She's been still on and around campus a bit. So I, I hope to be able to catch her and be able to send that out because her, the work that she was doing was really interesting. And run by her the question, uh, what sort of... 
one of the things that I wonder about is it seems like there's a lot of ways to go wrong in terms of attitude towards death. On mm-hmm. the one hand, you have the Numenorean kings who you almost see it. I almost wonder if Tolkien was anti-geriatric with that whole thing about <laughs> clinging to life until they're yes. witless and unmanned, yes. denying their denying their sons the kingship and the the fullness of their manhood. So obviously, that's certainly an anti-modern attitude because yeah. that's that's exactly how modern medicine works. We yes, live as long as possible. But then on the other hand, you have Denethor who you might make the argument that he was embracing death. <laughs> he right. had the proper attitude, death, <laughs> but right. yet he's reprimanded by Gandalf saying, yes. on the one hand, you, you know, it is good to accept death and not cling to life. On the other hand, you don't get to decide. Right. And, right. Uh, I think that's a really fascinating, I almost wonder, I wish Tolkien was here today so I could see what his attitude towards things like end-of-life care and euthanasia are, based on some of the things he presents in yes. the Numenorians. Yeah, I mean, there are some things which would seem pretty clear. The attitude towards death and just the things that you were talking about certainly would seem to suggest that prolonging someone's life on life support for a really long time would not be <laughs> something that Aragorn would be interested in, obviously, right? When it comes to questions like euthanasia, well, that, you know... Then it becomes quite a bit more complicated. But yeah, the point that you make is an excellent one because on the one hand, there are no two attitudes more diametrically opposed than Aragorn's hope on his deathbed and Denethor's despair at his pyre. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can easily point to those two things and say not only do they not agree, these are the two, like the two illustrations that you would point to. The clearest illustration of hope and the plainest illustration of despair. So totally opposite. And yet, as you say, the manifestations are almost identical. Both of them are, in a sense, abdicating their life, right? Abdicating their rulership, giving over their life willingly, and embracing death. Now, of course, they are really different, but it does make for a fascinating study because— Well, I think—I wonder if the difference is getting to your talk at Festival in the Shire, it's hope and despair. I mean, that really seems to be the differentiating—you know, Aragorn sort of—he gives up his life maybe with some life left, but he does so out of hope and out of grace— Denethor is in despair, and in that sense, Denethor is like the Numenorean kings who clung to life out of despair, not out of hope. Right. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that sort of correlates with the pride and despair dichotomy between the two of them is, with the hope and despair, see, I gave it away accidentally by a verbal slip, is pride and humility (laughs) as well. Pride and despair, you'll remember, is what Gandalf accuses Denethor of, and he is certainly guilty of both. Obviously, the Numenorean kings very guilty of both as well. Their pride is very clear. Aragorn is humble at the end. What he is saying at the end is, A, I am confident in what is to come. I am so confident in what is to come that I don't fear death. And I am not going to take one step to try to avoid it because I'm fine with it, because my hope is so strong. My hope in the future, again, hope in that Pauline sense, that Romans chapter 8 from the New Testament sense of what hope is. Whereas Denethor, in his despair, gives up and thinks that there's no point in living at all and rejects life entirely, which is a totally different attitude. But again, pride and humility is at least as big of a division there between the two of them. Denethor is 
essentially saying it's all about him. I'm going to please myself. I'm not going to give up power, both in the sense of like to yield political power in Minas Tirith to the coming king or to Gandalf, but also, of course, just like authority over himself. Like I will not submit to anyone. I will control myself and I will go out in my own terms. Whereas Aragorn, the opposite of that is showing humility and saying, this is not about me. For him to refuse death at that point and to cling to life would be to elevate himself and to turn inwards and focus on himself, just as the Numenorians did. So to me, pride and humility is another really good way of looking at the difference between those two. But again, it's fascinating how similar, superficially similar, yes. the, the two opposite poles look. And the, you know, I don't think it's the only example of that kind of thing in Tolkien. I mean, he is very interested in looking at both sides of certain equations, you know, sort of right. both poles of particular groups of opposites and things and exploring not just like I'm going to make them like caricature opposites of each other, but to show the kind of connections between them. And of course, the ways in which the bad side, the sinful side, is really just sort of a perversion of the good side. Right. It kind of reminds me, my favorite theologian, even though I'm Catholic, is a is a Lutheran, Paul Tillich. Okay. And he did a lot of work on those kinds of things, sort of looking at polar sort of concepts that come all the way around and there's a unity of them. And so that they're polar and yet at the same time, there's a unity where they become the same. And kind of, it's sort of, you're, the language you're using kind of made me think of that. It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, that was actually the topic I was originally thinking about trying to do my talk on at Festival in the Shire, that is the way that <laughs> Tolkien takes these sort of opposites and looks at both sides and brings them together. And I'm still really interested in that idea. In the end, that was so complicated, I was having a hard time squeezing it into a coherent talk, while at the same time, the hope and despair thing had been something I'd been really thinking about that through the teaching of my class this past spring. So that was kind of really in the forefront of my mind, and I really wanted to articulate that. So I ended up shifting my topic. But that kind of broader topic is something I might end up writing a book on that someday or something. But Please do. Yeah, that's been kind of on my mind. It's still sort of a back burner thing. It's the kind of thing that I still feel like I have to mull over for a while. <laughs> before that can really come together but yes but yeah well, it's, pretty, it's pretty deep and substantive it, take a lot of work it will yeah so not that i'm putting off the work but i don't want to do a sloppy version of that either it's another reason oh. why i ended up backing away from it as a talk topic i was like you know i'm not quite ready yet to try to bring this together so yeah but it's definitely fascinating stuff cool well, I shouldn't take up any more of your time, although before we go, I have some practical questions I wanted to ask just really briefly if that's sure, all right. Sure, sure. First, I want to say next time you do this, I'm going to call in and ask about uh, technology and Tolkien. Okay. I see a lot of similarities between Tolkien, and I remember a long time ago reading Heidegger's Concerning Technology. Mm -hmm. I see a lot of uh, – and I wonder – because they were writing at right around the same time, and I – doubt there was any interaction, but some of the imagery they use of tranquil countrysides being bulldozed over to right. developments is, is right. very similar. So, But I'm sure that was a popular imagery then. But but he there was a lot of stuff in his essay about mechanization and people becoming no longer subjects, but rather objects that are part of a system. It sounds very Saruman-ish. Yes, yes. <laughs> Yes. Well, um, I mean, in thinking of the phrase that Tolkien used to describe the modern era, he called it the robot age. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, that's, yep. yeah, you can see a similar kind of 
thought there. On the other hand, on a more positive note for technology, I remember you mentioning class a few times about work that people are doing applying computer science, natural language processing, computational linguistic stuff to in your area and that there's starting to be inroads. And I can't, who was it that you mentioned that was doing stuff like that? That's Michael Drought. He's uh, working on some of that stuff up at Wheaton. He's doing some really fascinating science, statistics, linguistic crossovers up there. He's got some really fascinating work going on among the 50 billion projects that Michael Drought can work on at the same time. (laughs) He is so prolific. I am like literally in awe of what Michael Drought can accomplish. He is just like my personal hero. But yeah, he is doing some really fascinating things. So I'm really going to be very interested to see what comes out of that. Do you have any aspirations to do similar work? Not really, mostly because my own such a weak grounding in linguistics myself that I just I don't feel like I've got sort of the tools. I'm very interested in it, but I feel like my own interest in it is sort of still at this point very, very amateur, you know, and comes out of it. Yeah, exactly. But I definitely don't feel like I enter into that arena you know, as an expert, I am much more a spectator in that particular field, but an interested spectator. <laughs> yeah, I'll be interested to see what comes out of that. I'm interested because my background is computer science and artificial intelligence and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And so I've done some natural language stuff. And so I'm very interested to see what, because those guys, typically the guys in that field just work on, they have some standard corpora that they work on, like news copy and things like that. Right. And I don't know of anyone that's really gone down the road of doing significant work on actual literature type stuff like hardcore literature so i'm very interested to see what comes out of that it's kind of exciting yeah definitely should be i mean he told me when he was on campus we talked about it a little bit i mean that they've been finding some really cool stuff so i think that they're getting towards publishing it so yeah that'll be cool yeah i'm i'm excited uh and finally and you're welcome to cut this out hello hello hi my name's Ben from Australia. <laughs> I've got one question uh, relating to the children of Huron. Sure. Yeah, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the boards, talking and discussion boards, the Burrow Downs. Mm-hmm. Um, well, anyway, there's this discussion going on there at the moment um, that's really quite interesting. And I just want to read out just a, a post from that really quickly. Okay. Which just kind of gets to my point. And first post in the discussion goes, Lord of the Rings, and to an extent The Hobbit, end in hope. The children of Huron ends in despair. In The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, we have a constant sense that there are forces of good behind events, guiding the protagonists towards ultimate victory. And in The Children of Huron, we have none of that. The Valar and Eru himself may as well not exist. This is what this poster writes. Morgoth is the ultimate divine power and does basically what he wants. What echoes throughout The Children of Huron is not the compassionate guidance of Eru, but the mocking laughter of Morgoth. The discussion has basically revolved around, well, should we take the children of Hurin in terms of the greater legendarium, or is it better and more appropriate to read it in terms of itself and of its own, if you like, uh, philosophical worldview? And a lot of people have said, well, no, you know, of course we should read it in terms of the Silmarillion as a whole and you know, take into account the eventual catastrophe of the uh, the War of Wrath. Right, right. uh, Yeah, and so I was just wondering what you might have thought of that. Well, you know, this is exactly the thing that I thought when the Children of Hurin came out, 
was sort of the thing that I thought made that most interesting. My first reaction when The Children of Hurin gets published is, why? Why would you do that to people? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's so horrible. But at the same time, you can't say that the choice to do that was inappropriate because Tolkien himself had spent so much time on that. I mean, it was always, the story of Turin was always one of the two great stories which he separated out. Well, really three. The story of the voyage of Eärendil is the third, though he never really even finished that one as much as he finished the story of Turin and the story of Baron and Luthien. But anyway, I mean, it was always for him one of the things which he was going to write as a freestanding story, you know, whether it was in verse form in the Lays of Beleriand or in the other versions later on. So, you know, you can't say really that a freestanding version of the Children of Hurin does some kind of violence to Tolkien's vision because that was part of his vision too. So I definitely agree that there are arguments to be made on both sides of that. I mean, I think to totally to treat it as if it were a completely different worldview doesn't really seem to make any sense. I mean, it's clear that this is supposed to take part in this world. It would be silly to ignore the fact that we do actually know the story that comes after it, Uh, just as silly as it would be to ignore the fact that we know the story that comes before it. I mean, we know a lot of the background of the Children of Hurin because of its context in the greater Silmarillion story. So if you're going to say we know about the near Nith Arnoidiad, so that helps us to understand the beginning of that story. Well, I mean, okay, if we're going to go there, then we need to go to the War of Wrath too. So, I mean, I think that that's, we can't pretend that the Children of Huron actually advocates a wholly different worldview. But at the same time, you can't deny the fact that, as you say, if you, you just pick up the Children of Huron, read it cover to cover and put it down. And if that were the only thing by Tolkien you ever read, you certainly wouldn't, necessarily suspect that this is a world in which you catastrophe (laughs) rules and that there is a benevolent providence that is orchestrating events. In one sense, I feel like the bigger question that kind of underlies this issue is basically, why is this one of the great stories in the first place? You know, why, why did he do this? Why did he write this? Okay, like the other two make sense. Right. Baron and Luthien, Eärendil. Sure. Of course. You know, I mean, you've got the story, you know, the lay of Lathian escape from bondage. Okay, great. You know, and the centrality of the bringing together of elf and human and all of the themes that get unfolded in that really great stuff. It's easy to show how that story is at the heart thematically of so much of, of everything that goes on in Middle Earth. And the same thing with the story of Eärendil. Yeah. Turin? Why? Why Turin? <laughs> it's not nearly as obvious. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the poster goes on to say, uh, anyone who didn't know Lord of the Rings and Children of Hurin were about the same person would hardly guess that to be the case. Yeah, there definitely seems to be, yeah, as you say, I'm not sure if you can talk about another worldview perhaps, but Yeah, it is an interesting question. Yeah, it is. And it's certainly a really good question, a really complicated question that I would have a hard time answering quickly and satisfyingly, I think. I don't just want to punt it either. (laughs) Sorry, using instinctively dropping to an American football analogy, (laughs) which I realized at the last second I I should explain. Here's sort of a sub point which gets to it. One question that I ask, and I think I did ask this in my class, one of the things that's fascinating, and it is especially interesting that it gets left out 
if I'm remembering correctly, it gets left out of the Children of Hurin. I just reread a bunch of the the History of Middle-earth series over the summer, which always has the effect of making me have a hard time remembering which versions of the story contain what. But if I'm remembering correctly, the end of the recently published Children of Hurin it ends with the death of Morwen, right? We don't get yeah. the we don't hear the business about the grave of the hapless and the toll Morwen sticking up above the sea, right? We don't get that. We do actually. We uh, it, it does end with the death of Morwen, but then it goes on very briefly to explain that. Okay. Know, um, okay. It, it, yeah. Okay. It, yeah. It, it it does go there briefly. Right. In the Silmarillion version, that comes in the next sequence. It doesn't come into the Turin Turin bar. Chapter yeah. right okay all right that's that's the one that's the one that I'm remembering that yes this is what always happens this is the problem when you're reading like four different drafts of versions of the same story right that moment is itself kind of opens up the question again that is okay so Beleriand sinks right you know at the end of the first stage Beleriand except this small strip of it sinks beneath the sea yeah and if so. you were to or sort of not knowing that one little passage. Uh, if you just were to read through the whole Silmarillion except that one passage, and then someone were to say, now, okay, now, one feature of geography is going to survive. One, <laughs> you know, there will be one monument of Beleriand left. Tell me what you think it is. And I doubt, like, the grave of Morwen and the memorial stone for Turin and Neonor would, like, make anyone's top ten list. I mean, how many better candidates would it seem that there would be than that? Right. Yeah. Even if you try to list like people's graves, like even if you said it's somebody's grave, people wouldn't guess it. Right. I mean, I would think like well, maybe the grave of Fingolfin. Right. A big deal is made out of that. Maybe the grave of Finrod. Maybe the grave of Glorfindel. I mean, these are other really important graves that a big deal is made of. Why Morwen? The way that he elevates this to show this is clearly a big deal in one sense. You know, it's almost like you can take that passage as the tombstone carved by Hurin for Turin, yeah. Neonor, and Morwen becomes like the memorial of the first age, like the memorial of all of Beleriand. Yeah, sure. So clearly it has a real significance for Tolkien. And I think, you know, in part, the fact that it's depressing is not in itself... I think that we kind of basically have to be careful how we take that. And here I'm thinking of some really interesting work that was done by two of my students in the last two years. One by my student, Liz Bateman, with whom I recorded a conversation a little while back talking about the topic of her thesis, which was what is the function of like all the depressing bits in Tolkien and how he talks about sort of the way that he contextualizes depressing stories. And she talks quite a bit about Turin Turambar and makes some really good points about how These stories, I've been using the word depressing pretty freely, but she was arguing, and I think very persuasively, that's not necessarily the case. The effect of these stories, and the effect of these stories when they are told within the framework of Middle-earth, that is, when other characters in the story hear these stories, they don't find them depressing. They don't find them discouraging. They don't just want to make you slit your throat. Instead, they actually bring hope. They are encouraging in some way. That's a clear effect. The other of my students that I'm thinking of is I just actually referred to this in a conversation with a previous caller. My thesis student last, uh, Alison Fishbach, she just graduated in the spring. She did her senior thesis, Tolkien's Treatment of Death, basically, and she did a really fascinating 
discussion of Turin Turambar in this context, in which she argues, and I, I won't steal her whole argument, I still hope to sit down and record a conversation with her to sort of lay out her argument in more detail, but she basically argues that Turin Turambar, and especially through the end of it, that that story ultimately is a story of triumph, a peculiarly and idiosyncratically human story of triumph. Like, it is not an elven story of triumph. It is yeah. a human story of triumph. In, in one sense, the final statement of this story is Hurin looking over at Morrowind right after she dies and saying she was not conquered. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that is yeah. the human triumph right there. And that the ultimate theme of that story is not Morgoth making everyone suffer horribly with impunity and ultimately sort of, you know, sitting back and laughing while everything is destroyed. Ultimately, Morgoth loses and Morgoth is deceived. And I think the children of Hurin, the the published children of Hurin version of the conversation between Morgoth and Hurin at the beginning of the story really emphasizes that, really throws that into relief, I think, much more than the Silmarillion version does. He is mistaken. He thinks that he can dominate them. And he tells them, like, you you have no escape from me. And, like, you and your family will never be able to escape from my influence. But at the end of the day, guess what? They do. Yeah, through yeah. death, and that seems really depressing, perhaps, but it's not within the context. And with the significance that Tolkien has given to death as the gift of Iluvatar, it's actually not necessarily depressing. Though sad, it's not actually defeatist, and it's not despairing. Yeah. That yeah. there is hope in the ending of that story. Though it's also clearly a testimony to like how much people can screw up their lives, which goodness knows Turin does. And that to me is one of the things that's so fascinating about that story. I mean, if this were just a story in which like a perfectly otherwise innocent guy just like gets pounded on by fate through the whole story, that wouldn't be all that interesting. But of course, the complexity of Turin's situation and how he is some of the things just seem to be the curse of Morgoth pursuing him, but others yeah. of them are just transparently him reaping the consequences of his own boneheaded decision <laughs> and really getting what he had coming to him. But it's really hard to sort them out in places, and you can just sort of see this web, you know, this swamp that human beings get mired in with their <laughs> own free will and the malicious forces around them. And I think that depicting that is one of the things that Tolkien was really interested to do. You know, yeah. anyone who thinks that the kind of ultimately optimistic, you catastrophic pro-happy ending perspective that Tolkien has in many of his other works, if anyone thinks that Tolkien's worldview is ultimately a rose-tinted one. Well, just get them a copy of The Children of Hurin and they'll change their minds, I hope. But Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, there's so much more that could be said about that. And I know that that discussion was no more than a sort of <laughs> promissory note of a longer discussion later on. But I do hope yeah. I do hope to do a fuller discussion on this topic yeah. Uh, yeah. with my student, Allison, and, and I hope to be able to post that before too very long. Okay, that would be great. Yeah. Thanks very much. Oh, no problem. That's a great question. Yeah, all right. No worries. Okay, talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye.
All right. In talking to the last two callers, I alluded to plans to record a conversation with my former student, Allison Fishbach. I did, in fact, make that recording, and that file is just about ready to post. At the moment, it's Boxing Day and snowing like crazy up here in beautiful New Hampshire where I am spending Christmas with my family. If we don't lose power, I should be able to post the recording of my conversation with Allison in the next day or two. If we do lose power, wish me luck. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.